What's good? Welcome back to The Culture We Speak, and thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Deanna Latimer-Hearn. For the 51st anniversary of Title IX legislation, I caught up with Sherry Tucker of Shorewood School District in Wisconsin to talk about her experience as a collegiate student-athlete and how that informs her equity work. From the flavorful foods we eat to the rhythm of the beats we keep, our hair and clothes define what it means to be chic. For centuries, onlookers have been captivated by our mystique and every aspect of our being that makes us unique. This is The Culture We Speak. I'm here today with Sherry Tucker, who is currently serving in her third year as the Director for Equity for the Shorewood School District. Prior to joining the Shorewood staff, she served as a classroom teacher as well as an associate principal for the Glendale River Hills School District. Sherry has served in the Milwaukee Public School System for 16 years as an educational assistant, classroom teacher, culturally responsive grade level leader, and a GE demonstration classroom educator. Sherry is also a consultant with ICS for Equity. She received her undergraduate degree in elementary education from Marquette University, where she played Division I college basketball. Lastly, she holds two postgraduate degrees, one in educational leadership, as well as a master's of education. So I see you've been putting in that work. Welcome to The Culture We Speak. Now, thank you for having me and thank you for the work that you're doing. You and I have talked about this before, the tax and toll um, of living this. Somebody asked me the other day, you tired? I said, I'm, I'm black and tired, which is black and yes. tired is, 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 a little, is a little different. So I just appreciate different. you for real and the tax and toll that you carry to to put this into the universe that, that all people need to hear. Yeah. And likewise, I, I think that's where we kind of connected when I met you in person, which isn't always the case for the guests on the show. So I met Sherry when I was visiting Milwaukee. I have a good friend who is a strong ally and she took me to meet some different people in different spaces and to be able to connect with, with folks. And this was definitely one of the highlights of my trip was meeting you because again, just being able to meet somebody who understands the struggle, who is experiencing it. And then, you know, at least you can look and just have eye contact and say, look, I see you. We out here. And this is, this is what we're we doing. Are out here. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> we are out here. Yes, we are. And we're uh, not going anywhere. No, nah, we're going to still be here. So no, I say this, and if we are going somewhere, we're not going quietly. Yeah, that's, that's real right there. Not going quietly. I will definitely be speaking up the entire time. So um, when you're built for this, I won't say built for this. I know we talked briefly offline about this, like when this is what you're called to do, yeah. you know, kind of have to, to use a basketball terminology, you got to slap that court and get in position and yeah, right. <laughs> you got to, you got to do it up. So um, yeah, I think, I think for, for us, the two of us have had conversations about, um, you know, this not being a popularity contest, you're not making a lot of friends you really are doing this work, one, because we feel like everyone needs to hear it. It's not just folks of color that need to hear it. It's everyone that needs to hear this. And we're truly passionate for our kids having a different experience than we had. Um, And I always use this analogy, like I grew up with Sunday dinners at my grandparents' house and listening to them talk about their experiences and then listening to my parents talk about their experiences. And now when you hear your kids come home and talk about similar experiences, four generations of what are we doing? Yeah. What are we doing? And so it just is, it's a space that um, creates discomfort, but to me, it it creates growth as well. Um, And I'm uncomfortable every day. I had a lady one time tell me, one of my white colleagues that I worked with one time, she said, these conversations for me, Tucker, are uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable. And I said, well, your uncomfortableness is my reality. 
yeah. your uncomfortableness is my reality. So exactly. And put that on so and think can, about, yeah, think, think about, about how it. we navigate the world just carrying that. Yeah. And your uncomfortableness might last for a moment. Yeah. Okay. I, I so. could just get a vacation in that moment for real. Yeah. Like, I, so that. <laughs> like, can you imagine <laughs> that would be like, oh, this is uncomfortable for five minutes. And like, meanwhile, you know, like we're out here fighting, like you said, generationally, we have dealt with this for forever. And it seems like at times that things are not shifting or changing. I do see progress and I do see moments of that, sure. um, but it can be discouraging in the midst of, of activism and just um, anti-racist work. It can be discouraging at times because it's heavy and the people who actually need to change and the people who need to be engaged in this are the onlookers a lot of times. Yeah. The bystanders in the, I call it like the double dutch theory, right? Like you can jump in, right? Like sometimes you can turn the rope. Sometimes you can jump in. Sometimes you can stand on the side and cheer on. And uh, there's other people who are constantly in there jumping. Right. And being called on to perform in, in all the different ways that we perform too. Yeah. Every space, like work. Every. Society, everything. <laughs> everything, 24-7. <laughs> I wish we could like sell tickets to like, you know, like a ride or something. Like this is the experience. Come with us. This, See what it's like. It. Yeah. yeah. Feel this. Like you, you come back for a, a second ride. <laughs> right. Are you going to come back again? Probably not. <laughs> We're going to have to charge a higher rate for the first part then, I guess. 100%. <laughs> Especially with inflation now. We have to. Yeah, definitely. But um, I, like I said, when I met you, I just felt encouraged. I saw a lot of the work that you're doing currently in your district. We toured um, the schools there at Shorewood. And I wanted to just, you know, also touch on some of that. I was very much encouraged by what I saw because it did not look like the school I went through when I was a kid, um, seeing kids in actively engaged in learning, seeing them learn about multicultural content, just readily engaged in it and diving into different cultures and languages was very rewarding. And that was just on a brief walkthrough in your school. So I only got a snapshot, but I'm like, I need to see this movie. Um, (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit more about some of the work that you all are doing? to promote equitable outcomes and equitable education? I think the biggest thing is we will always be focused on our students here in Shorewood and, and trying to hear their voices, but also understanding there's a tax and toll of that too. Like you have to balance the ability to listen to student voice without taxing them as well, because sometimes it's always the same kids, right? Who have to share their story or share their experience. And so what does that mean for them? I think we've had some very honest conversations around race and gender and equity. And we are very intentional about building a team here. Like I got here, I'll be very honest with you. I was on the first like Zoom calls and I'm clicking the arrow button like, okay, I've got to the fifth click. I don't see no faces of color, seven, eight. And I was very intentional about trying to build a team that I thought would come and be able to do this work um, and the support that hopefully I can provide for them. I always say when you're an ally or an advocate, it's very privileged of me to say I'm an ally for someone or an advocate to me. They acknowledge that because I don't get to say I'm an ally. I'm an advocate for somebody. Like they might be like, nah, girl, you're not. (laughs) And so (laughs) for me, the biggest thing we've been able to do is center our students to celebrate and elevate our students. I'm unapologetic for bringing women of color to these spaces. Anytime that we talk about the work, I try not to use the pronoun I, because I don't do this. We do this. And the team we've built here really are a team of people that believe in this work and believe in our kids and they're doing their own work too. I think that's the biggest thing. You can't take a day off. I always say here in our district, inequities don't take a day off. And so when you're working through whiteness and working in whiteness and working on whiteness, 
and working on structures that are, you know, set up for whiteness. Yeah. You have to work at it every single day. Um, so I think those are some of the things that we're doing. I'm really proud of the focus on our students. I'm really proud of our staff taking looks internally about curriculum and opportunities for kids and how we're writing curriculum or how we're trying to connect with kids. And as you saw, my biggest thing is like, I remember being in the classroom and then the administrator, I'm like, where are the people from district office? Like, what happens back there? It's magical. And I knew when I was blessed enough to get this job that I was still going to be in buildings with kids. And so on my worst days, I close my computer and I walk away from grown people. Yeah. <laughs> and I protect my peace by being around kids. Because I always tell people too, you have to protect your peace. And so those are some of the things that I'm really proud of that we have done here in the district is the work that we are continuously trying to achieve to support our students. You know, you took me on a tour of the, the campus and I was just amazed that you knew every kid that came over there, you knew their story, you knew their situation, you're asking questions um, just about their latest and what's going on with them. And it was clear that you were plugged into the community. And I thought about, you know, it caused me to really reflect on my own experience. Like how many times was I invisible in the spaces that I studied in, you know, all the way up through my PhD, how many times was I just this invisible person in this space that no one thought about, no one considered And here you are at a district level leadership position, but you're focused on all of these children and you know them, you know their stories, you know the challenges they're facing. And that makes the work that you're doing much more relevant and much more um, effective or impactful because you're able to then understand the outcome of the decisions that you're making. You're understanding who's being affected by it instead of it being significantly divorced, which I see in a lot of districts where it's divorced from that. You know, I sit over here in this magic kingdom, I make decisions about people and this is what I think is best. I don't consider the outcome. So that was really amazing to see. And I think what you said resonated with me because I was back then. I went to a predominantly white school in elementary school and then middle school, they rezoned our area. And so it was like culture shock on a different level because now I was like, oh, I'm around all these black folks and I'm around all these brown folks. And our middle school and high school was extremely diverse. I went to a high school that was 70% students of color but I had no teachers of color and I was an athlete, right? And so you and I have talked about like as an athlete, oh, okay, right? And so like the biases that people have around, oh yeah, okay, so you're an athlete. And I think for me, I I really tried to focus on, I want kids to be seen. I want them to feel secure and I want them to feel special. And so every time I try to engage with the students, I want them to know that they're seen because you and I have talked about this too. I think the dichotomy, especially for black women, is being invincible and invisible at the exact same time in the exact same moment. So can burden, you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think, so I think about this a lot. I said, you know, I really want to eventually write something about the dichotomy of being invincible. I think that as, you know, a lot of women, that whether you're a mother or whether you're an auntie or whether you're a granny or whether you are a working mom or you quote unquote don't work outside of the home and So what does that mean to be invincible? The amount of stuff you have to carry for other people. You're constantly on the back burner because you're thinking about your kids. You're thinking about your mate. You're thinking about the world. Think about where you dropped your kids off. Who's going to say something to them today? How am I going to keep them grounded and whole? And you're trying to be invincible because you don't want them to carry the burdens that you carry. And so you keep a lot of stuff inside and you carry that with you. And so trying to be invincible and be there for everyone. And, you know, I always say, like, especially when you're a, a woman of color, like, I always think the interview process is so fascinating. So I love, like, when an interview is over and people debrief, 
and they'll say, well, she was so arrogant and so, she, I don't know, like, are we going to be able to collaborate with her? Mm-hmm. Because she seemed like she knew it all. And in my head, I'm thinking, but if she came in here and wasn't confident, like the language we use for white men, what would you say about her then? Oh, she's meek. She's going to be a pushover. She won't be able to lead us. She can't lead change effectively. Yeah. Right. So that's that you can't win. And then the invisible part is like walking in these spaces sometimes, like people will literally not speak or they wait Mm -hmm. to see that you have your badge. Like, so who are you? Like, do you belong here? And so that dichotomy, especially for women of color, is very fascinating. And so it's something I think about often. And so I relate it back to our kids. I always want our kids to be seen. I just had such a unique experience. There's a kid yesterday who was presenting. He talked about managing his emotions. I thought it was really deep because I think there's a difference between managing emotions and showing emotions. Mm-hmm. Like I never want our kids to not be able to show their emotions. You should be able to show them. Yeah, but when we you all do. have them. Mm-hmm. And right? some so people are allowed like? to have them and some people, you know, need to manage them, like you said. Right. And so that was really deep to me. So that's what I think about, about being invisible and invincible at the same time. And whether that's in your work life, whether that's in society, whether that's in your home life, whether it's, you know, let's be honest, in the medical field. Like there's a lot of studies about the pain tolerance of people of color. Studies. We're going to use that term loosely here, I'm guessing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you that suggests correct. that, yeah, that we're we're so superhuman that we don't need right people just thinking about right like the studies around now they're thinking about how to reimagine care for people in various communities and and for the record we're in all the communities I want people to know that so yeah let's make sure we got that right (laughs) yeah yeah we're in all the communities everywhere (laughs) we do yeah but I want to rewind for a second with this whole you know what you were saying about interview processes so that resonates with me because I, gosh, it's been probably a couple of years now. Um, I went in for an interview for a leadership position with a, a school, a university, and they were actually building a program for speech pathology. And so I thought, oh, this is, this is what's up. I could do this. It's your wheelhouse. Um, yeah. But I'm going into this, um, this session or this interview. And so the people I'm interviewing with are from different disciplines. So they're likely not as well versed on what it is that speech pathologists do. A lot of folks outside of our profession have a limited understanding of the work we do. I come in, I'm black and everyone else is white. And I'm trying to demonstrate, one, that I have the the capacity to do this. I can really help your team establish a program, build this and, and get this moving. And at the same time, I'm being forced to consider, am I also being this quote unquote uppity, you know, like the stereotypical uppity black woman who knows more than the other party, right? And so that landing strip, for that interview is extremely narrow. Like how do you demonstrate this level of competence and this like authority on a topic? And at the same time, you know, not be too well-versed in this and too knowledgeable for the people who want to be seen as the ones in charge, you know? And so some of those challenges also play out when we're trying to do that. Like you said, so being perceived as, oh, well, this person is either a pushover on one side or on the other side, they, oh, they know too much and they're strong-headed and they're not going to be a good team member. So how do you land that? Like, where do you land that plane is my question. Like, how do you fit up in in the middle of that? I think for years it's been recognizing, I think I spent a lot of time, honestly, if I'm going to be truly transparent, it's figuring out who the audience was and how I could answer questions. And then now I'm too old for that. 
I'm too old for that. I, I just, I don't. Part two. I, I, and too many gray hairs and too many extra pounds. And I don't have, yeah. I need to be me. I'm going to be me. Yeah. Because ultimately when I get there, like I always say interviews are like data points for students. They're one day, they're one time. It does not paint mm -hmm. an accurate picture of who that person is. And I need to see you on, on your best day, on your worst day, the days in between. And so I go into the interview now and I just tell myself, I take a deep breath and I say, Tuck, you, you got to be who you are. And if it sticks and lands, great. And if, if this is the decision or the direction they want to move. But ultimately, I have to look myself in the mirror and be okay with me. But you are absolutely correct. Like that, to land that plane is, is very, very difficult and challenging. But I've years of experience, lots of no's. I've had lots Definitely. of no's in my life, right? Of right? course. So like we get mm -hmm. it from the womb. No. Yeah. Our parents tell us no. No, no, no. With no explanation. Yeah. And so I think yeah. like for me, it's now to the point of what can I do for the next woman that's coming behind me? And what I try to tell most of my female mentees and female leaders that I'm so fortunate to work with is you be you yeah. and they have to adjust. And I'm with you there. Like, and it's become a thing now, like I said, or I've shared before, I should say, um, being outside of different organizations and doing what I'm doing out here in the space where I'm doing it has been freeing. It has been an opportunity to really find my voice and to speak up for things that I think matter and to do so unapologetically. And I know that that's not always well received. And that also is sort of entertaining. Like that's sort of a built-in piece for me. <laughs> it's sort of entertaining. Like if I'm telling the truth, I kind of enjoy yeah. disrupting and, and ruffling feathers. I mean, yeah. it can be a good time. But um, yeah, it's just something I think about at times. Like when I consider, you know, like you said, working with mentees and working with people who are trying to do this, sometimes that can be challenging, especially when they're just starting out, finding yeah. a, how to present themselves to the world, a world that doesn't necessarily accept them is, is yeah. challenging. And that's something that yeah. a lot of people don't have to consider. You know, they walk 100%. in. hundred percent. I'm present. I'm here. I am. This is what I have to offer. You know, right. and what you have to offer is accepted in the package it comes in. Whereas some of us actually have to try to figure out how to fit that into spaces. And that's yeah. again, why we do this work. You know, this is why you're engaged in the work you're doing. What I'm doing what I do because yeah. we have to disrupt that. It has to not be the case for the next generation. Yeah. And just trying to morph ourselves sometimes into places where people may not want us. But I think it, it's still a journey. And there's days that, you know, I'm I feel like I do better than other days. I always tell people like when you're in certain roles in leadership, somebody's gonna be mad at you every single day. And I have to be honest, some days I'm mad at myself and how I led in something or didn't lead the way I wanted to in certain spaces and places. And it, it takes practice and it takes perseverance and it's take the ability to be reflective but it's just such a it's such a unique space that we are asked to occupy um, and I also think you have to have a team you have to have I call them ledge pushers and ledge pullers yes. right like you have to have people <laughs> who are going to pull you back off that ledge like nah girl today's not the day to go there let me yeah. talk you down and then you mm -hmm. need ledge pushers who sometimes will tell you no you are built for this you got mm -hmm. this this is your role this is your job you got it and sometimes you know we have those friends or those people in our life that we call them to push us over the ledge then we have those people who are going to pull us back too. And so being able to find that, that team of people that can support you, I think is so important. Yeah. Community matters for real. Yeah, all day. Especially in this and, and for your own just mental health in the process of fighting uh, systems, you need that just people. And that's why, again, I know we didn't talk about all these things <laughs> when I met you, but I was like, she sees me and I see her, you know, like I, I got this and, and it helped to, to watch the work that you were engaged in and to see that in action. And, you know, starting out on the visit to Milwaukee and visiting different sites, 
you don't know what you're going to see. You don't know what you're going to get out of this, you know? And so it sort of fit. And I was like, wow, that was refreshing. That's what I needed when I didn't know that's what I needed. Like to see that in action. That's deep. Yeah, it's really deep. What you need when you don't even know you need it sometimes. And and having those connections with people really elevate and remind us of why we do what we do. Definitely. So we had a whole conversation. They have nothing to do with these questions, but let me. We're good. We're good. We'll segue it. I got, I believe it. We're going to figure it out. Uh, Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about your student athlete experience and, um, and tell us a little bit about, you know, what it looked like. I know you played the wrong sport here in basketball. I played (laughs) We'll forgive you for that, but, um, (laughs) but what was, what was that experience like for you at the post-secondary level? Yeah, well, so I think, yeah, I did play basketball and soccer. So as you said, I played the wrong sport, but I don't know what y'all soccer players think. That's a lot of running. That's, that's a, that's a lot of running. It's so much running. <laughs> and you're playing in like the most inclement weather conditions ever. Y'all, lightning, <laughs> y'all are playing. So no, yeah. I'm good. I feel like I stuck with the right sport. Indoor, I know the conditions. I know what I'm walking into. So yeah, soccer. That's interesting though. I did basketball and soccer and I guess I chose poorly, but (laughs) (laughs) given what you just said, I I chose poorly, but yeah. So I ended up with soccer instead of basketball. Yeah. you I think for me, my post-secondary experience, I grew up on the East coast, right? So right outside Washington, DC, phenomenal family support system. And I was just telling somebody today, they're like, how'd you pick Marquette to play basketball? And so that's something I'm proud of now that I have like semi-adult children is I looked at the roster, true story. And I was like, man, they got a senior point guard. She's going to graduate. I can get there and play as a freshman. Strategic boy. Very strategic. (laughs) I mean, really smart. Looked at like the Jesuit institution, all the academics, the history of Al McGuire. I didn't look at none of that. I looked at (laughs) Senior <laughs> point guard, she's graduated. We come in here and tell these people and show these people that I can play. Yeah. Um, so I think my experience was one, the East Coast is a totally different vibe than the Midwest. And so I got to Marquette and my parents dropped me off and gave me like some really good advice. My dad told me, little girl, you're going to learn way more out of the classroom than you do in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And if you're an ignorant person, you're an ignorant person. And just so keep those two things. So that stuck with me. And, and that was great. But then I literally was in the school of education. I could go an entire week besides my teammates and not see any person of color. And so it just weighed on me in regards to like where I fit in, uh, questions that professors asked me. Like we had, we had to sit in the first, you know, we had a rule. You had to sit in a certain row in the class. And obviously you're expected to attend class because you should, right? And so, um, you know, if you, I had to go to practice. So sometimes I would have my basketball gear on and I'm still going to class. But it was just fascinating, the reaction. And I would have practice some of my white teammates that, you know, professors would have like, especially because also you're not from Wisconsin either, right? So there's like that geographical point of view like not really understanding the Midwest. And I got a little East Coast to me. And then it's also the, oh, and so, oh, that's how you got into Marquette. And so I think my experience was I had a lot of, so many highs my freshman year. I mean, I started every game. I played, I saw success. And, you know, you get to see that. But then you're also realizing like, hmm, it's a different kind of environment. And what kids talked about where they were going on the weekend. I'm going up north to my cottage. I'm going, I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. And so you get to see the gender, um, you get to see what the men's basketball players got. Yeah, and you got to it's a little see, different, huh? Right. How practice <laughs> times work? Like, oh, okay, we're changing practice today because they have. Okay, fascinating. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, 
Right. So I think for me, it was just like a shift. I grew up very quickly and I figured out how to become an adult because I didn't have any family here. So I had to, one, create my own family. Two, I had to get very creative of responses to how you got here, which I would mm-hmm. say has helped me tremendously in my professional life. Yeah. How'd you get here? Same. It's How'd always that. From? It's the same right now in professional life, you know, like, yeah, should you be here? And then of course, like the, the extra interviews that you do after you've been given the job, you know, you, I, I got hired, I did what I had to do to get here. Now my right. colleagues are going to interview me to make sure I mm-hmm. should be here. Yeah. Like, and what did you that? know? Yeah. Who'd you know? Always an excuse yeah. in it. You know, it can't be yeah. that I was just, I, I'm just balling out of control. I came in and I'm starting. It can't be yeah. that. <laughs> no, I had to know somebody. And I, I told someone here like, when I first started and we, you know, recruited or whatever. People are like, how do you know this? I said, yeah, we, we know how to network. It's fascinating. You all don't call it networking for yourself. Yeah. You might call it networking. But yeah, we still. So that was my experience. I feel like it prepared me, but also like how to respond to the, how did you get here and you don't belong? Occupying space is part of your, that's the beginning of your activism right there. Like, right there. You're in the space, right yeah. here in your face. There's right nothing here you can say or do about it. <laughs> no, and I'll show up tomorrow. And I'm going to dribble circles around you, whether it's on yeah. the court or on the soccer field, you know. Yeah, right, right. Even <laughs> so, the, yeah. yeah, soccer field. Yeah, I know, but you gotta, you gotta love soccer. Come on now. <laughs> I do. I'm still a huge fan. I just know that that I have so much admiration for soccer players because the endurance and the quick spurts, right? So it's not just like quick spurts, but like you run several miles just in one game, and it doesn't matter what position you play, and it's extremely physical. And it's 45 minutes until you get a break. <laughs> you didn't <laughs> you like that. Timeouts. There were no timeouts. <laughs> Just TV timeouts, but there's no yeah. other timeouts. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I had a similar experience, I think. I, I grew up in the Midwest, though. So I didn't have the, the East Coast Midwest transition. But growing up in the Midwest and then going to Northwestern to play soccer, and of course, it being this well-known university for academics, it's like, oh, we know how you got here. You know, and it's like, no, no, you actually don't know how I got here. I ended up walking onto the team. My parent called to ask if I could walk on after I got accepted because I wasn't recruited. And so I ended up walking on and earning a scholarship as I was, you know, doing my thing there, which was great, just earning a little yeah. bit more money each year. But like you said, it it was definitely a foreign experience for me, you know, coming in and not looking like any of the other people. And of course, in soccer, gosh, I can't remember the statistics around that time. I want to say Black women were maybe 2% of the entire NCAA Division One soccer, you know, atmosphere or world. And so being in that underrepresented, really not looking like, quote unquote, what I should look like to be the soccer player yeah. and coming in with a different background, you know, not having all of the resources for Olympic development and all that stuff and ended up, yeah. you know, sort of having this, this is how I play and this is what I bring to the team. And maybe it doesn't look like what you think it should, yeah. but you know, when it goes in the goal, it still counts because that scoreboard yes, it is good. Yeah. still goes on the board. <laughs> yeah. And so yes, your, what was your experience like then being a walker? Um, very different just because of the fact that I didn't layered. quite belong. Yeah. You don't belong and you don't quite fit into this what you're supposed to be racially, income wise yeah. at that point, and then also just in sense of like deserving to play or yeah, or having the skills. Yeah. Yeah. So it was very different in the beginning. And and honestly, growing up, like it's not that I came from like a low income background, is that the people I was playing with apparently had a lot of resources. And I had no understanding of that. I hadn't really been exposed to that in my town I had come from. And so then coming into this and seeing people, you know, like you said, going to the vacation home or, you know, changing the weather regularly, taking flights, 
things like that. You know, it was different because I was like, oh, that's how we're getting down. So I'm gonna try and figure out how I'm gonna buy this book for next semester. But all right, right. You know, do right. you? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, right. you know, by senior year when I got the full the full thing paid for, I was getting all the books at that point. You know, but okay, before yeah. that it was a little hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, I was like, I need these good. over here, and these are recommended, so I'm just gonna <laughs> put them on there. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so it was it was like you said, layered in that I didn't quite belong in that mm-hmm. space in the same way that maybe others felt I should, or, you know, others did. And so carving out a, a niche for myself was something that was challenging. And that I can say now I understand looking back at it, like, again, that, that being present and being in the space, and this is where I am, and this is what I'm going to do, whether you like it or not, whether you approve of it, whether it looks like what you think it should look like, this is me. And this is what I'm going to be right here in this space. Yeah. And I think to me, like, to a certain extent, that's what sports have taught me. I feel like sports prepared me and continues to prepare me. I rely so much on my experiences of playing sports and whether that's a coach who maybe didn't have the same belief or didn't think you had the same value um, as whether that's another player or whether there's, you know, maybe politics involved, that parent, you know, may have been friends with them or they, and that's like, so that, that part was fascinating to me. And when I got into coaching and now I have my own kids to play, like I said, it's very layered. Um, And then I realized like as a scholarship athlete, like I have to acknowledge my privilege. I do have to acknowledge my privilege. Marquette didn't have a football team, so I didn't compete with that. Like, but it was the men's basketball team and and what you had access to. And I look at what the women have access to now. You spoke earlier about I've seen progress and growth. Like my homegirls and I go back, we're like, look at this locker room. And we were rocking Converse with gel coming out the shoes. Oh and one pair of shorts. Like you can't rock Converse and think you look cool. We look terrible. And uh, no disrespect, love Marquette. And now, you know, they have Jordans um, and they have these, they have access to so many things. And that's what I want. Like every person and every student athlete and every kid who's there, who's competing for that university or their college should have that. Yeah. And I think for me, I'll be honest, I took for granted, like, yeah, I had a full scholarship. I got, you know, a stipend every month. It wasn't a lot, but I also had a privilege. I lived with a roommate who was from Wisconsin. So I was at their house probably more than she was. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew how to barter. Like I could get, you got this, I'll give you, you know, and so I think that on the court, that's where I felt comfortable and I could be me because there were other people who looked like me. So I think your experience is way more complicated, right? <laughs> so I think about that. Like I had some homegirls on the team and yeah. And then when I, I got like, off there the were court, a couple, there were a couple of people, you know, a couple of non-white players in particular. And then, yeah, it was challenging. <laughs> So, you know, I still keep in touch, um, particularly with with one person. Uh, we're we're still really close, which is great. We talk pretty much every day. But yeah, yeah, it was it was different. Yeah. And I don't even know how to how to qualify that in like a but I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. And I, right. I definitely value the despite the hardship, despite the challenges that I faced, like it gave me the tenacity to do what I need to do now. It gave me the ability to adapt to different environments to sure. again be be my own team sometimes you know sometimes it was just me and that's that's enough you know yeah I can sit here and be me and that's it and yeah. I'm cool I support me you know and so yeah. it grows yeah. your confidence in some ways and I think the opportunity to be a student athlete is a great privilege just in and of itself there are definitely challenges that come with it but um for sure but I think it gives you a lot of life life skills yeah I agree with you 100 I think it kind of prepares you and you know I talked a little bit about this but like so my experience was you know I played I got recruited so I went through like that whole process and so you're 17 you're like man I'm on top of the world summer after my freshman year I went overseas and played and then I got hurt right and so what does that mean 
Right. And what does that mean? Similar to what you said earlier, like what does that mean for your peer relationship? What does that mean for your own mental health? Like dealing with that? What does that mean for how the university values or devalues you? Um, because I'm no longer putting a ball in the hope for you. Yeah. And so like you said, being your own cheerleader, I had to reinvent myself and define who I am for me. And so I always say like, I don't regret it. One, one, I would never wish for any of my other teammates to get hurt, right? Like that's kind of, of whack course. to be like, oh, well, I wish it was so. And so. <laughs> that's whack. And so I always think like everything happens for a reason. I truly believe that. And so the ball stopped bouncing and I had to come up with a way that I could still use what I thought was a skill set of mine to impact other people. Because I think that's what sports did for me. It impacted me so tremendously on so many levels that the adrenaline rush I had of playing sports and competing and being there with your teammates and the moments that nobody knows outside of like your team. I had to figure out like, how can I still use the skills that I developed as a student athlete? And now I'm still a quote unquote student athlete, but it's more of the student side. And how can the gifts that I've been given, how can I use them to give it to someone else? That's a big one. You become the motivational person instead of the, the one leading the charge. But yeah, that's, that's powerful. And, and I like how you said that when the ball stops bouncing, because at some point it does, especially for women, a lot of times yeah. there's not as much that you can do after the fact. As we discussed, you know, Title IX and its impact because the anniversary of Title IX is coming up, you know, just thinking about how that changed some things and how groundbreaking it was, but then how there's still such a long way to go in terms of reaching equity for women's sports and opportunities, particularly beyond college. You know, looking at pay discrepancies, even if we look at basketball, like what kind of, right. you know, professional pay discrepancies. So, <laughs> so yeah, so seeing things like that and, and recognizing that, yeah, we, we sort of established this idea, you know, decades ago that, hey, everyone should have the opportunity to engage in sports, but we're still struggling to do that. And we're very much struggling with this idea of everyone, because now right. we've got, you know, gender identity being sort of incorporated into this and individuals being excluded, despite the fact that the law is written to protect anybody, anybody. You know, regardless of gender, it's there for everyone. Correct. But we seem to like to pick and choose where we apply it at this point. And I see that a yeah. lot in the media. Um, so that's, yeah, it's going to be interesting watching how that develops moving forward. And I think something like I thought a lot about this, about the ball stops bouncing. And I think many times, especially athletes, you think of a window, right? So I think if I got four years here, maybe five, if you redshirt, if you get this extra COVID year. I think what the NCAA and like former athletes can really do is start chunking years for our student athletes. Like we do a lot of goal setting in sports, right? Like no matter what sports you play, you have individual goals that you set, you have team goals that you set, you have offensive, defensive, you have, you know, if you're in gymnastics, you're trying to get point, no matter what it is, swim and dive, you're setting goals, you're constantly setting goals. And I've always said, like, if we could have student athletes set goals for whether it's academics or internships, I'll take a student athlete any day of the week in any okay. setting, oh, right? Yeah. Because we're most intrinsically motivated. Mm -hmm. We're extremely hardworking. We are adaptable. And we learn how to get along with people to accomplish a goal. Whether exactly. we're sure we get along with them or not, right? Like we can fake it in this setting. <laughs> yeah, squash all that on the, on the court or on the field. Like, yeah, you don't even think about it. Here. Yeah. And so I think like one thing I would really like to do, especially like with Title IX, like you said, with that coming up, is thinking about how we can support student athletes, not just when the ball stops bouncing after four years, but what about that off season, right? Because there's not as many opportunities for women to play professional sports. And even if you do, then equities around pay are just almost insurmountable because you still have to find another career 
to supplement that income for the passion that you have for your sport. Which is wild. That's so wild that you still need another career in that. I mean, the amount of time that you're dedicating to your, to your sports, to the skills around that is ridiculous, right? You already know that's like intense. Yeah. To also have to contribute and like commit other time to other things in order to survive. To survive, to survive. And so I think that's something like I've, I've really thought a lot about in my dream job, if it wasn't this, like being able to figure out mentoring for student athletes, for former athletes to connect with current athletes to think about, okay, so what does your off season look like? What does yeah. it truly look like? Cause you're going to have individual workouts, right? You're going to have off season with the strength and conditioning coach. You're going to have speaking engagements. You might have all this, but how can we as former athletes and how can the NCAA truly do a better job of being able to connect student athletes with their passion outside of their sport? Back at one point to Northwestern and they had a, an event that was sort of like a mixer where people were just hanging out, talking to, you know, former athletes, talking to current athletes. And the questions that sort of came up in the little roundtable discussions I was having in this, you know, kind of mingling through this room were a, a lot of them were around that. How do I transition to the, to professional life? How do I use what I know and and incorporate things I learned in sports? And so it was very interesting that all of the questions sort of followed and and like fell into the category in the area that you're talking about, because (laughs) it's obviously a need. Yeah, I think that would be amazing. I wish that that had existed when I was in that place, because just the networking power in that room alone would have been priceless for me. Absolutely. And I think that like, I used to always say too, so like just a, a quick aside, when I, when I was at Marquette, what I realized is like some of my counterparts, like some of my peers, like they were networking and I hadn't been taught that because let's be honest, there's a, there's a cultural context in our community too. of Like you, you fight through it and you figure it out and you do it on your own. And I had to do this and you know what I mean? And so I'm just, I was sitting here thinking, I tell my kids now this all the time, any kid, not just my own biological children, but my kids that I engage with. Networking is the biggest skill set you can have. You never know who you're going to run into. You never know who you're going to meet. It should be seen as an asset. Like, yeah, networking, I know this person. Not as, oh, I need help and I'm, you know, I have a deficit in this area. So this person is going to help me in this specific area. I think it can be positioned as that, particularly for minoritized populations. Like when you come in to that space, it's almost structured in a way that's like a handout in that. You know, yeah. and that's probably what contributes to that perception about that process, you know, networking. And I feel like that that was often my understanding of those relationships. I'm coming in, I'm asking for something. I'm not bringing anything to the table, but you yourself are an asset. And like walking into that room and being your whole self is an asset and you're bringing things to the table and you're educating people around you just by being. So don't ever look at that like I'm empty handed and I'm coming into this space like you very much deserve to be in whatever space you occupy. Yeah, you, you know, the right to do whatever, you know, go into that yeah. space and, and demand, speak yeah. up for yourself and, and get what you need. But that is something that we do have to be better and more intentional about teaching in our community. Yeah. And what does, what does networking sound like, feel like, right? Because it, it could be different sorts of networking and then understanding, like, I think the whole recruiting process is fascinating too, right? So like, I mean, I wouldn't know, you, but yeah, but yeah, they, <laughs> they sell you a dream, right? And so yeah. it's, it's understanding that like, it's the same thing with a job, right? Like when you interview and everyone asks the standard question at the end, why, why this organization? Why would I like it here? I mean, who, who's going to say in the interview? Well, really, you're not going to like it. We have this issue and this issue and this issue, and this is something we have to work on. And so I feel like it's such a standard question that is when you're being interviewed, that's what you ask. And so I try to think about like the recruiting process and what that means, because then I feel like a lot of student athletes struggle because you're one of 
four in this class, one of five, you're one of eight. Now you're walking on, right? Or you are a practice player who's still contributing to the success of that team. And so what does that mean for you to be able to use the skill set that you're gaining, but to network? And what does that sound like and feel like? Because for you and I, as Black women, it's going to sound different and feel different. And we network differently because we have different needs. Definitely. And the support we need is going to look different depending on what space and place we occupy. Yeah, that's real. I want to take it back for a second. I know we were talking about the different things you might contribute in sports and you listed a few sports. You were talking about gymnastics and diving and swimming. And yeah, of course, we got soccer and basketball. There are a lot of inequities around that as well. The sports that are available for women to play at the college level and not just women, but the sports that we celebrate and provide funding for at the college level are sports that don't necessarily show up in black and brown communities. You know, they're not as accessible. And so I do want to talk about that a little bit. You know, even with my own experience, I'm sure basketball might have been a little bit more accessible. It was pretty accessible for me. Um, But soccer was not something that was readily available, I'd say, you know, without going and seeking it out and finding teams and figuring out how to plug into it. Right. um, It was a little bit less natural. So how do we support youth that are interested in, you know, becoming a student athlete at some point, but maybe don't have access to those sports? How do we make it more equitable? Yeah, and I think you brought up such a valid point. Like, where are you going to just go and practice on a soccer field, like a whole soccer field to get that, to reinvent like a game situation or simulate that? And I think like for basketball, right? You can put a basket up, you can go hoop for football, right? You can run some routes, maybe, you you know, you're running stuff. I think the university has the responsibility to get into the community and get back to the community. I think 100% there should be some mandated stuff around student athletes being in the community and giving back to and not when you have these camps that somebody has to pay for because that's Lots an money. issue that's right? a so like now too. I can yeah. run a camp, right so I can run a camp at these colleges and universities and I can bring in potential student athletes and let's think about it what percentage of those kids are truly going to end up at that university mm-hmm. right so you have and which ones can even pay to come to the camp right and so to me I'm like so that creates an inequity it's because one it's a money maker like you're having camps and yes you're exposing kids and they're getting t-shirts or they might get something and they get access to the student athletes but to me part of your role being a student athlete on scholarship not on scholarship is to give back to the next generation right so like if I'm a swimmer or a diver how can I find time to open up the pool or the area where kids can come in? And I'm not charging them. I'm not trying to make anything off of it. But what can I do? How many free camps are we truly offering for kids in the community? How am I accessing that? How am I getting that word out? So I think for me, that's what I think about is you, the message should be as a student athlete is, yes, the ball will stop bouncing and you're not going to be able to spin and do beam or do all these other things. The floor exercise might end, but your goal should be to grow the sport at an exponential level, but how do you do that in a community? Because let's like, think about most of these colleges and universities, right, are in a really, really rural setting, or they're right in the heart of the city. And those are the two most impacted communities for inequity, right? They're not putting a college campus right in the middle of the bird. So what are we doing in those rural communities? What are we doing in the central city to, to give access to students starting at a young age where they can find the passion for it? And we're opening up access to them to come onto our campus and to live that experience too. And then each year you level up, right? So like now I have an opportunity for a sophomore or junior because their experience needs to look different. So what will your classes look like? What's a college campus tour? Like we have tours for potential students, but we should, yeah. you know, student athletes too. We should be having potential tours for people in the community to understand what they potentially have access to if they come here. 
that's a big one because a lot of times it's this romanticized view of what it is to be a student athlete um, by that. people who have not walked that path. And, yeah. and it's interesting because I watch as not all of my teammates, but some of my teammates are less likely to push their kids in that direction because they know that it has to be something they select and that they are engaged in and they choose to do versus yeah. like this sort of driven, like I'm mom, I'm screaming at you on the sidelines. Like you got to get this and we they're handing out scholarships today. You know what I mean? Like some today. of the parents who are doing that, um, I see are kind of hungry for this opportunity, but not fully understanding maybe the cost of that opportunity as well. And so yeah. programs such as that would enable people to, to sort of interface with student athletes and understand it's not all roses when you arrive at this space. I think people really see it as just a good time. You're yeah. hanging out, you're doing a sport you love, it's fun. And it's yeah. like, yeah, it's fun. Um, but I'm also working. And I mean, now with NIL deals and all that, it's different. But before, okay. you know, you're largely exploited <laughs> for the benefit of the university. Mm -hmm. And this is what it is. That's that's the relationship. That's the experience, you know? Yeah. And I don't yeah. think people yeah. see that side of it as much. Now, obviously, it has shifted because of NIL. But No, I think back in the day and even now, depending on what sports you are, like what access you have for NIL, because there's inequities around that. And I also think, like, I was just at, uh, we were at a recent basketball game at a collegiate game, and something I thought that the university did an exceptional job of is they had sections for student-athletes. So, like, it was a women's basketball game. It was at Notre Dame. They had the softball team out there. And they had the swim and dive, and they had tennis, and it was, like, women's day, right? And so they had all these female student-athletes. And you should see the look on the kids' faces, right? Because... They were like, oh my gosh, that's a softball player. Oh my gosh, that's a soccer player. Oh my. And so they had these sections and, you know, obviously it was intentional that they recruited youth programs to come to that game and to sit in that section. And so yeah. I was just thinking that's my mind starts going all these places about, man, we're, we could be doing that at so many different places. And, you know, heaven forbid some football programs give up a section. Won't get into that, but yeah. yeah I digress. <laughs> so, but I think that's kind of how you can start to grow maybe the, the tie-in between the community and the love of the of the sport and being able to show a kid that what they thought was impossible is not possible. The reason I think about those inequities is because when I got to Northwestern, I see sports going on. I'm like, we didn't have any of this going on in my high school. You know, this wasn't available in my city, in my community. I've heard of it, but it's not something I ever engaged in or even came across like even the equipment for this, you know, like, it's not like it yeah. was just laying around in the bin with the basketball and, <laughs> you know, the baseball glove. I didn't find the equipment for like lacrosse in there, you know? <laughs> so yeah. how or do you then, teams, right? yeah, you don't, you don't have that. And so it's very hard to then envision yourself doing it or even have the exposure to get to the level that you need to be at in order to compete at a collegiate level. Right. You know, there's a lot of work that goes in many years that go into that before you get to the college level to even be prepared yeah. to do it. So. And then thinking about too, like, like I mentioned before, what that recruiting process is like and what happens if the coach leaves. Now you're in this community for so this coach who recruited you. And so trying our best to prepare the next generation of students and student athletes around, how do you make a collegiate decision that's best for you? Like, can you see yourself in this community? Can you see yourself if you aren't able to play anymore? Can you see yourself if you're a post leave? Can you see yourself if your best friend on the team, something happens to them or they transfer or whatever. And so like all those different scenarios that could potentially happen because they do happen. And how do you carve out a space where you still belong? 
and I will say at our university, I felt like it was very segregated in terms of, I'll say students, student athletes. And then of course, within the student group, I felt like it was very racially segregated many times. Yeah. So it was interesting. And I like that the sports opened up doors to other groups. And so there was pretty diverse experience, especially for me being a soccer player. Um, But, you know, I pretty much interacted with any other athlete, you know, it was just kind of like, this is part of your community. But I saw how much of the university was very isolated in terms of racialized groups. And that was really frustrating to watch and to see. And then like not quite fitting into that because I'm a student athlete. So I'm a little bit of a different category. So how do you navigate those spaces too? Like all of that has to be part of that exposure you're getting to this idea of being a student athlete or even a student at a university. You need to see all of that in action because that can also impact, you know, that cultural shock or that, that experience you may be looking for versus what you might get. No, hundred percent. And then just managing too, like your freshman year, a study hall or this commitment or individual workouts. And now understanding like the grind that comes with that and getting up early and figuring out how to make a class schedule. I say bring in the fun, bring in the fun right? to class. Cause like those 6 a.m. practices and I show up Man. to class, like this is what you got. You know, I, I can't hear <laughs> there was no time for the shower. So, yeah. you know, sit down over there if you don't want to be near me <laughs> but you know there were times where you even do that it, there's so many pieces of this that people don't think about in terms of your yes. social engagement with the university how you present yourself in certain spaces you know like I said it's a very romanticized view of student athlete like it's yeah oh, it's all this and it's not it's, it's yeah you guys get great things you get gear you get to travel you get to miss class uh, that's right? not that's not a get like right it is not that is the worst <laughs> to try to study on the road and make oh up my gosh how you're gonna like it's so stressful I hated that and you it know what I also struggled with like motion sickness at times and so I oh. couldn't study all the time on the bus because I would feel sick reading oh. you know, my books and so then I'm oh. like now I'm even more behind because I got like maybe a two-hour ride but I can't even get work done at this point you know mm. so things like that could also impact how well you do so that missing class is definitely not a get in my opinion that's definitely that's rough (laughs) you know especially weekly or pretty regularly even at at home games we would miss class sometimes yeah I think it's fascinating too like I mean you and I are a little bit wiser I'm not going to say older we're wiser but I think now what what COVID has done is one I always say like to me it's, it's fascinating now that people can recognize inequities because they felt like they first for the first time they experienced so like the first generation of inequity safe experience fantastic some of us have eight generations of experience <laughs> welcome to the party because yeah. <laughs> you were told no for the first time in your life yeah it was hard How it did was that tough. I know it was <laughs> but I think about what it has done in regards to access for universities and colleges and how they now present information like professors can record themselves and they you can get access that way but then you're assuming right a lot about who has access to that because as a student athlete you have an additional four to six hours a day yep so if I miss a class yeah that's great like I can access the webinar I can access the, the thing but I just I have a workout I have study hall I have a commitment here my coach wants to talk to me and three to five practice doesn't mean three to five practice, right? You're getting no. there early because you got to get taped. You have to show yeah. Three means that's the time they're starting. Yeah. And you need to be ready like 245. Right. Like and that's five not a suggested <laughs> end time. That's what we're suggesting. <laughs> if you if you do what I'm saying the right way, then that's the end time. Yeah. Now, if y'all don't yeah. get it together, 
no, we might be here all night. Get on the line. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's also um, an important point. It's not like, you know, oh, at five, I'm going to be at this. Right. Yeah. No, it doesn't work that way. So I want to ask about just the issues that we see with racism in sports. I see that it's very prevalent. I'm looking at a lot of professional sports, collegiate sports, and even on down to backyard sports. So I see a lot of racism and racist actions and behaviors that happen, particularly with crowds that are watching games, which is wild. Like in a lot of these, especially with um, soccer internationally, I see a lot of tolerance for just outright abuse, like racist abuse of players. Um, And what are your thoughts and what has kind of been your experience with racism on the court or in other sports that you've engaged in? Yeah, I think soccer is extremely fascinating, right? Because there's literally like no no shame. Bananas on the field, monkeys on the field, the N-word being shouted as they're coming out of the tunnel. What are we doing, right? So I I think from the United States perspective, people think, well, that's what's happening over there. No, it's not. It's happening right here. And so I think for me, um, I just told the story the other day, we were at this, I'm from Virginia, I'm in a small rural town, uh, my parents are driving, I have my white teammate with me, we stop at this Wendy's in like Lynchburg, Virginia, literally the city of Lynchburg, Virginia, stop at this Wendy's, a little girl stares at me, I mean a good solid two minute stare mm-hmm. as we're standing in line, she says, look mommy, there's one, and I was like, wow, right, so I was like 14, 15 playing AAU, and I distinctly remember too, like same weekend we're playing and you know basketball has a pretty unique especially in Virginia like that Mason Dixon line you know like when you're in southern Virginia you know the flags are there the, you know and so you go and it, I, I think it was maybe the first time I recognized that the n-word was said and I'm, I'm sure I had heard it right like I'm not naive or ignorant enough to believe that I hadn't heard it so yeah. I think like you you hear it for the first time and recognize and then realize how you're going to respond to that because you can have several responses right like oh, I could yeah. have laid her out gotten a technical and then how does that impact my team I could have called her something else back right and then how does that impact our team and then but to me I'm always going to let my actions speak louder than my words so now we've got the kids now it's, it's going to be on we're pressing we're about to run this score up have to do this yeah <laughs> yeah so you go ahead and take your n words and you got to take yeah. this l with it so yeah exactly and get <laughs> you might catch this converse once I get those yeah, converse yeah. issues yeah, you get these converse. <laughs> but I think fascinating enough I think about like at the NBA and Russell Westbrook and his experience in Utah Utah historically has said racist things to Boston at Fenway Park right so we talk about those professional things we're like oh, I didn't know this was happening and then now I think it hit with the NCAA like it was so amazing to watch the excitement around women's basketball this year right so that is my definitely speak from like women's basketball and, and the excitement and I think about the year before like the young lady from Oregon who pointed out like, look at these conditions we're playing yeah her, her weight room right come on now yeah. you got some barbells and some dumbbells and that's it and you putting this in the hotel lobby <laughs> yeah I know right <laughs> Man, we ain't doing that and so but she exposed it, right? So think about who she was. Yeah. Right? Yeah, what school did she go to? What was her race? She talked about it. She exposed it. I would say years ago, Dawn Staley spoke about it. She's been talking about it. And so I have that context too. Like, oh, people picked up the story now. This young lady is talking yeah, about yeah. it. Got to yeah. a certain way. Yeah, right? For it to be received. And it gets into that whole idea of entitlement too, which is amazing to me. Um, just the idea that certain people deserve certain things, but other people feel, you know, so untitled by complaining about 
what is inequitable and it's like right. yeah when you get to that then yeah. you really start you got to look underneath what's what's behind this discussion of entitlement right what's the root cause and so i think that whole the excitement around women's basketball now we get to like just even the south carolina iowa game right so you have south carolina south carolina looks how they look and iowa looks how they look so they turned it into this you know iowa all white team and don Staley and her black players and the language that was used to describe how her team played and you know they were down here in yeah. texas yeah surprise. and so surprise, that, surprise, and, but yeah. yeah and i tell people uh listen i think caitlin clark is an amazing woman what she does for the game of women's basketball what she does off the court but she 1000 percent talks trash and had been talking yeah. trash all season yeah. to anybody and everybody but the language that was used around caitlin clark was she's competitive motivates her team she has to Not do so spin. much for her team yeah. yeah, I call it loaded and coded language, right? So uh, she, definitely. Right? And then you have Angel Reese. Yeah. Who whipped that more. tail. But, yeah. um, <laughs> and then, and then, of course, that was a problem, you know, because now she's, she's like, she's one of those that's overconfident and she's so disrespectful and she's bad for the game and she's, yeah, disrespecting the whole game, which I thought was fascinating. And I said, this young lady, Caitlin, shoots from half court. She shoots fadeaway jump shots. She's doing whatever. She's clapping in people's faces. She's, yeah. you know, slapping the floor. She's an intense player. Yeah, and she should be. I don't think there's and anything wrong with be. being one. But I think that then you got you to gotta look at it the same way. Don't let the, yep. you know, the melanin mess that up for you. You have to look at it the same way. Yeah. This person is also As the intense. young people say, keep the same energy. Keep the same energy. Yeah, right. And then not only that, but I mean, if you balling like that and you can call, you know, I don't know. I, I personally wouldn't write checks that I can't cash, you know, like, yeah. and that's what essentially happened. You know, Caitlin yeah. Clark was out there doing what she was doing and it was all fun and games and this was great for the sport. Correct. And then it wasn't for a minute and they took the L and somebody else had yeah. some things to say. And it's like, but once Angel Reese does it, then we want to code that yeah. with something else. And it's the same, yeah, once same Angel Reese does it, once Don Staley speaks out on things and uh, you know, then she's complaining. I said, actually, this, she's been speaking about this for years. We talked a lot today about giving back. What Dawn Staley has done for oh, the yeah. game of women, like I just said, the game of women, because we got to have game. Like, we have to yeah. have game to get things done. And it's bigger than she was just out there supporting their softball team went to the College World Series. She's out there. She was just at BG thing for the WNBA. She oh. supports women she goes highlighting so other teams things. and everything else yeah and she's always like I, I think she's just amazing like I've always been a fan of her I don't know that yeah. there was a time where I wasn't I'm sure there was probably a time where I didn't know that she existed but I feel like once I found out like <laughs> I was a huge fan of anything she does um but it's amazing and I was curious as to how it would be received when she was expressing mm. what she was about her team about the language used around her team um and how that would be perceived because of the fact that they lost because all these little nuanced situations also affect the the way that that message is received and so is this going to be oh you know quote unquote poor sportsmanship on her behalf because now she's right. complaining that this wasn't fair or the people were doing the wrong thing and that's not it at all and i hope that people saw that that wasn't it that she really was speaking up and defending her student athletes because this type of double speak happens all the time Yep. Um, I've experienced it when I was playing at Northwestern, we came down here and played against Baylor and against Texas Christian. Mm. 
and it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't the, it wasn't really like for me an experience in Christianity personally but <laughs> so, so we you. were um <laughs> you know at these two institutions that purport to do this in a, in a Christian way but <laughs> um but there was like you know the first I think the first gate was Texas Christian when we got here and some folks showed up and I don't even have to tell you what's going on pickup truck large flag flying and berated me and the other non-white players throughout the game. I mean, anytime we got the ball, anytime we did anything on the field, you know, it's just going on, right? And during this experience, which is crazy, because I'm like, this is this is what we're doing, you know, like during this game, loud, wide open, everyone can hear. No one spoke up for us. No one said this is, you know, inappropriate, unacceptable. This can't happen. Um, and after the game, I got some sort of like ridiculous half apology from my coach who was like, well, had I known this was going on, I would have said oh. something. Well, like, were you conscious during the game? Because the, how did you not yeah. know that this was going on and that we were experiencing racialized abuse in the middle of a game? And I'm out wow. here trying to do what it is I'm here to do for your sport. But this is. And this if is I had I known, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. I would have done so this and do I would have done know. that. Right. Yeah. So and you, you and know. you can still take action, but still don't time. give me the like, don't talk game now. Like go out there, slap the court, do what go you said you're going to do. Right. <laughs> right. And so then in the, in the next game, you know, against Baylor, wow. apparently there were some things that were said. I couldn't hear them at that time, but there were things being said. And one of the white parents came afterwards and told me, you know, oh, this is what was being said. And I thought I was going to have to fight, you know, like I don't need a report of racist content so that you can like position yourself as some sort of ally or advocate in the space, you know, like after the fact. Yeah. Because if you were really an ally or advocate, you wouldn't be telling me these horrible things that I did not know. or didn't need to know where that were going on, you know, like don't come bringing a report of, Hey, these racist terms didn't reach you, but this is what is <laughs> being said. Like, you know, miss me with that. I could live my life without that information. I don't need another episode of racialized experience. Um, where I'm the outlier and I'm being singled out, you know, so that you can say that how you didn't interrupt, you but you heard it. Right. But what but you, you were about it. to do. Yeah. yeah. And if I had known and if they, if I heard yeah. one more comment, I would have yeah. gone over there. Which just that next one didn't happen, right? They didn't yeah. the threshold. And the first 17 <laughs> that I heard, but if they got an 18, girl, I had you. Yeah, okay. Right. And and like, okay. I don't think people recognize what that does to you as a student athlete, as a human being, just you're human. you're doing your best to perform and to do whatever it is that you're out here to do. Um, and you're being forced to also contend with some folks who aren't even on the field, you know, and sometimes yeah. in sports, we might check you. I might check you physically when you do stuff like, yeah, that. I can't even yeah, I check you. you because you're, you're over there. Yeah. And nobody cares and nobody's saying anything. And so that essentially creates this, this whole, you know, stadium is co-signers. Like, what are y'all doing for me? And so the Tell importance of just standing up. Do. Right. <laughs> and so just the importance of speaking up at that point, I cannot, I can't overstate it. Like you need to interrupt. You need to disrupt that. Absolutely. That game shouldn't have continued. Things should be different. Stop it right then and there. Yeah. Cut it off. Because I mean, even in the, in the case of professional sports, they paid money and they're not going to get the game. If this right. is the behavior, there's a consequence, you know, life has them. Absolutely. So cut that off. I think that's fascinating, similar to what you said at the beginning, too, like going back to in the moment, how can you interrupt it and disrupt it? And don't, like you said, don't tell me after the fact, like I hear this all the time and I know what my life is like, but if you're not going to go stand in it with me and say something, then don't come tell me. I'm sorry that happened to you for your coach to say, oh, if I had known, well, I mean, you got ears, don't you? 
Like you knew everything else I was doing wrong. Right. <laughs> you didn't have no problem reminding me if I wasn't getting back to the defense or if I was right. off back. Right. Exactly. No right. You knew all that. <laughs> yeah. If I missed an assignment, that. you didn't hear the racial, right. racial episodes that were being Right. You're not in my class, but you know when I didn't turn something in though. Right. Yeah. yeah it's fascinating. <laughs> the double duck theory, right? Like you can jump in and, and when you want to, or you can just turn the rope. And it didn't matter. I don't have to worry about it. It's not my thing. No. So before we, you know, kind of close out on the conversation, I'd like to know at what moment did you realize that your culture or language was not quote unquote mainstream? Man, I think uh, at a pretty young age, like I said, I went to a predominantly white school. And so I had three older brothers who had been through and, you know, my brothers had Afros growing up. So I think culturally that way, like them fitting in or not fitting in. So I think my culture and language I knew at a young age, I was super blessed that I had two parents who instilled in me and older brothers who instilled in me, like, talk how you talk. This is how you talk. And I, I too, have, like, a bassier voice. And so there's times, like, on the phone, they're like, sir, I can, I'm like, I'm not a sir. I just got a lot of bass in my voice. Uh, so, like, my language in regards to how it played into, like, sports and my academic career and then, like, being in predominantly white faces and like the questions that I was asked and like that that kind of thing around your language and your culture and because we didn't see it and I'm sure and especially like you and I do have that in common too with soccer like truly how many sisters were playing soccer not too many just us it was mostly just right (laughs) yeah it wasn't too many sisters playing soccer and so like what that cultural lens was like to be in these spaces and there's a lot of kids on the soccer team and then there's families come and the dynamics around that and like something interesting I think about like culturally too like my parents were not going out to buy food in between games we had to get over here to this cooler yeah you a sandwich. Right? <laughs> we're not going to the concession stand exactly no concession stand like you gotta go get this ham sandwich and a juice box if you're lucky yeah, yeah. and, and so get I back think out my, there. my language yeah my language and my culture then was pretty defined as I watched teammates go up and order, you know, hot dogs or whatever they could get at the concession stand or, you know, in between games. But but my language has always been defined by, I call it white standards of success. Yeah. What about for you? Nobody ever asked me the question. I learned this pretty early on, I think. Um, I was told very early by my mom, like, don't talk like that at school. And I'm like, for you to admonish me about talking like that at school, but she yeah. was saying it in African-American English, like, you know, the saying yeah. what you need to do. And it was kind of funny because I'm like, wait, wait, you're using it, but I can't use it. Okay. You know, and I kind of right. had this, this perception that she was going to pop up on me. So I never did in the beginning, but I started seeing the people who broke that rule, right? This is a rule to me. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I saw mm-hmm. the people around me who are breaking that rule. And so I had a real clear understanding very young of what those different codes were, even if I couldn't define it. Yeah. Um, but I could see what would happen, what the consequence was for people who weren't doing what I was doing, you know? And I thought, well, why don't they just do it the way I'm doing it and they'll be good? Needless to say, they were doing it the right way and I was doing it the wrong way, you know, like yeah. taking on something that wasn't for me. And Indeed. they had already unpacked, you know, I kind of look at it like these boxes we check, right? These demographic boxes, they had already unpacked their their proverbial box. They were good. Yeah. They were cool with the contents. And I was the one who hadn't unpacked that and I hadn't examined why I don't need to perform whiteness or whatever you want to call it. I don't need to perform that in order to be successful. I'm smart. However, I come. Yes, you are. Right. So that's yes, where it was. Queen. Let them know you're in the building. But last question for you, any suggestions yeah. for others to promote cultural or linguistic justice to engage in this equity work you're doing? 
And I know this yeah, is about yeah, to yeah. be smooth and real deep, but go ahead. No, no. I think <laughs> really, do, start with your own work. You have to do your own work and you have to work at it. And it can't just be one day, one time. Uh, that's not an accurate data point for anybody. I don't care what organization you're in. You wouldn't want your supervisor to come in one day, one time and paint an entire picture of you. So you have to work at it on a consistent basis. You have to surround yourself with people that are going to push you and make you uncomfortable and sit in it. You have to sit in your discomfort because that's the only way you're going to grow. You have to expose yourself to things that are different from you. Um, and you have to expose yourself to people that are different than you. And it doesn't always have to be race or gender. It's different perspectives. Like I said earlier, you're alleged pushers and you're alleged pullers. It's something to me that is as natural as breathing, but is as unnatural as like putting in the work, right? So like we breathe this, we live this. You and I have talked about it. It's in our DNA. But the people who don't you can no longer stand on the sidelines to use a you know a sports reference Mm -hmm. you got to sub yourself in and you no longer can be the person that's just turning the double dutch you got to get in there and and, and move your legs and your arms and work just like we're working and you can ask for help and for feedback but not at the expense of our health yeah that's real all right so I thank you. I I absolutely love you, Sherry. I'm so glad we connected and met. And I just, I thank you for taking the time to, you know, be here and share your knowledge and your expertise about all of this. And no, I wish you the best of luck in anything and everything that you do, Queen, just keep being you. You are an amazing soul and spirit and you inspire me to just be, be a better person. And so that means a lot to me. And I'm humbled that we were able to connect. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Culture We Speak. Be sure to rate us on your streaming platform. Want more discussion around our content? Join us in The Culture We Speak Facebook group. For more information on our sponsor, React Initiative Inc., and additional equity-focused content, please visit iReact.org. That's I-R-E-A-C-T.org.